Essays 43-51 through 51 of It's a Good Old World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. It's a Good Old World by Bruce Barton. Essay number 43. If you can't fall in love with your job, for goodness sake, change it. A young man writes me this letter. I am employed in the post office at $100 a month. The salary is sufficient to keep my family comfortable, but I simply loathe the work. I see no chance of promotion in it, and it demands so many of my evenings that I have practically no home life at all. Don't you think that under these circumstances I am justified in looking around for something more congenial? My answer to him is, Every day you remain in that post office is a day lost out of your life. You are to live only once. What is the very best thing a man can get out of life? To be happy in his work and at home. You are happy neither in your work nor at home. You are wasting the only existence that will ever be yours in this world. You will come to the end of your road and, looking back, will say to yourself, I was cheated. Other men had life and happiness. I only had life. No matter what the immediate sacrifice, find your real place in the world, the job that will call out your whole best self. For until you have found it, you bear on your forehead the mark of discontent that employers shun. The stars in their courses fight against you. No matter what your work is, let it be yours, said Emerson. No matter if you are a tinker, or a preacher, or a blacksmith, or president, let what you are doing be organic. Let it be in your bones, and you open the door by which the affluence of heaven and earth shall stream into you. I know of nothing so inspiring as to read the lives of men who were in love with their work. Agassiz, the great naturalist, used to say that he believed the fishes would die for him just to give him their skeletons. Edmund Haley, the astronomer, was another happy workman. Finding, in his youth, that other astronomers had undertaken to catalogue the stars of the northern hemisphere, he loaded a telescope on a boat and started to the southern hemisphere. On shipboard he was busy every minute and made important discoveries. Then it occurred to him that if one could study the transit of Venus, that is, observe Venus at the time when her orbit crosses the orbit of the sun, one could gather data from which to figure the weight of the sun, its distance from the earth, and many other important facts about the solar system. But the next transit of Venus was not to occur until 1769. It was almost certain that Halley could not live that long. As a matter of fact, he died in 1742. But when 1769 rolled round, the astronomers of that day found all ready and waiting for them the formula which Halley had prepared. The man who had loved his work so wholeheartedly in life lived on triumphant over death. His devotion had won him immortality. I should want to be paid at least $50,000 a year to be president of a brewery or a civil engineer, because I hate beer and mathematics. But I write editorials at a few dollars less a year, because I love it. And, loving it, I know that I shall someday make a comfortable living. For there is a competency for any man in any job in the world into which he can put his whole self enthusiastically. 
He did it with all his heart, as I have quoted of Hezekiah before, and prospered. End of Essay Number 43 Essay Number 44 The Business of Distributing Metals Has Rather Got Into a Rut I met him in the smoking car, and he told me he was a steel worker, on his way to find a job in one of the new shipyards. I remarked that the wages must be very large in the shipyards. On the contrary, he answered, I should be making less than I made at home, and I'll be away from my family besides. But I had to do it, he continued, and his eyes flashed as he spoke. It's my way of doing my part, my contribution to the men that are fighting to make this a safe world for my kids. When he left the train, I reflected that this is one of the unfortunate facts of war, that it calls forth the sacrifice of the whole nation and honors the sacrifice of only a very few. We have the Congressional Medal for the man who, in one moment of valor, hurls himself over the trench, and nobly, in truth, does he deserve it. But where is the medal for the man who, day after day, quietly, unobtrusively, does his job, as conscientiously as if the very safety of the Republic were dependent on it? The farther I go in the world, the more I distrust the mere outward signs of greatness, the titles and the bank rolls and the popular applause. More and more I pin my faith to the spirit in which a man's life job is done. If God were to send two angels to earth, said Stephen Tying, one to sit on the throne of England and the other to sweep the streets of London, the service of the two would be equally honored in his sight. I am not writing to reconcile men who have failed to failure. I have no sympathy with any man who weakly contents himself with being less in the world than his best. But I grow very impatient with the kind of talk and writing which would make us believe that there is only one sort of courage, the courage of battlefield, and only one sort of success, the success of money and fame. Every man has in his heart the seeds of courage, and every man the possibilities of success. It may be success in finance, or in bricklaying, in government, or in gardening. It matters not. The measure of it is the same. And that measure consists not in wealth or titles, but in a man's own self-respect, his own deep-lying consciousness that he has, with the tools that were given him, done his level best. There lived one time a man named Moses, whose experience with democracy was not altogether encouraging. He saved his people from slavery, and a good part of the time they grumbled at him for doing it. Would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets, he exclaimed one day, by which I take it that he meant, would to God there were a spark of divinity in them that would make them capable of wider vision, a larger measure of self-sacrifice. Had he been able to see a little deeper, Moses might have discovered that his wish was fulfilled, that there is in every man precisely the divinity for which he yearned. War discovers that divinity as no other great experience can. All around me I see merchants and day laborers and farmers, who have risen to a height of self-sacrifice which is a revelation to themselves and to all who know them. It is our misfortune that there is no outward symbol with which to reward that splendor. The business of awarding medals has fallen into certain well-defined ruts. Perhaps some day we shall see more clearly and reward with greater wisdom honoring equally the sacrifice of the battlefield and the sacrifice at home. For both are sparks of the same divinity. 
twin manifestations of the presence of the same great oversoul. End of Essay Number 44 Essay Number 45 The finest investment you can make is to help the right young man find the right job. In an office not far from mine is a man 36 years old, whose title is office manager. So far as salary is concerned, he is not a failure. He makes a living for himself and family. He carries a little life insurance and saves a little money. But in his heart, he knows he has failed. He is a woeful, pathetic misfit. Nature intended him for a farmer. He wanted to go to an agricultural college, and his father sent him to a business school instead. The call of the soil is in his ears, and he must stifle it with the click of a typewriter. He is one of the vast army of those whose brief time on this earth has been largely lost because they never found the work for which they were made. When I consider how vast that army is, and the bitterness of its tragedy, I marvel that fathers do not consider the question of their sons' careers with prayer and fasting, instead of which there are many men who treat the lives of their sons as though they were mere pawns in the game, to be moved lightly, here or there. Michelangelo wanted to be an artist. From his earliest days in school he neglected everything to be busy with his pen. Yet his father and uncles, far from welcoming his interest as a direct gift from heaven, beat him cruelly, for they hated the profession of artist, and, in their ignorance of the nobility of art, it seemed a disgrace to have one in the house. John Adams' father tried by main force to settle the boy at a cobbler's bench for life. Handel's father despised music and would not have a musical instrument in the house. Tennyson's grandfather, tossing the lad ten shillings for an elegy on his grandmother, remarked, There, that's the first money you ever earned by your poetry, and take my word for it, it will be the last. When Lowell's father learned that his son had won the prize offered by Harvard University for the finest poem written by an undergraduate, he received the news in sorrow. I had hoped, he said sadly, that under the steadying influence of college, James would become less flighty. Lowell spoke out of the depths of personal experience when he wrote, It is the vain endeavor to make ourselves what we are not that has strewn history with so many broken purposes and lives left in the rough. Not all fathers, by any means, have been short-sighted. A great majority, fortunately for the world, have considered the selection of the right career by their sons as the most important problem of their lives. The business world is full of kindly, big-visioned men who have given time and thought, not merely to guiding their own sons' careers, but also to setting the feet of other men's sons on the path of success. There can be no more satisfactory employment. No man could have a finer epitaph than this. He was the friend and helper of young men. Organizations fail. Stocks prove worthless. The most carefully made investments too often leak away. But a young life, fitted into its proper place in the world, is an investment whose power goes on through the years, and even into eternity. Blessed is the man who has found his work, said Carlyle and thrice blessed is the man who helped that man to find it. End of Essay Number 45 Essay Number 46 The world is owned by men who cross bridges before they come to them. A young man came one day to Lauren F. Deland, 
that wise adviser to businessmen, and said this, I have been three years in the same job, and I feel that I am entirely lost sight of by my employers. There is no future ahead of me. I am discouraged and hopeless. What shall I do? Mr. Deland answered, I will undertake to help you, but you must promise to do exactly as I say. The young man promised hopefully. For thirty days, said Mr. Deland, I want you to concentrate every working minute on the following problem. What suggestion can I make to my employer by which he can, in the next calendar year, increase his sales $50,000, or $5,000, or $500, or $100? At the end of thirty days the young man returned crestfallen to report that he had not been able to think of one single suggestion. Mr. Deland then gave him this problem for the second month. Devote every energy to discovering some way by which your employer can in the next year save $5,000 or $500 or $50 in the cost of conducting his affairs. At the end of the second month, the young man was back again with a second confession of failure. He said also that he had decided not to ask for any further help. Then Mr. Deland spoke his mind. So, Mills, you don't care for any more of my advice, he said. Well, this time, I'm going to give it to you without your wanting it. My boy, just realize a moment where you stand. With the enormous amount of clothing business that is being done, you are not able, though you have been three years in this house, to increase the volume of business one hundred dollars a year. With the elaborate and necessarily wasteful methods in which that great business is transacted, you are not near enough to it to point out a better system in any department whereby the small sum of fifty dollars a year may be saved. My boy, lie low. Attract just as little attention to yourself as you can. Don't let the manager remember that you have been there three years in his employ if you can help it. If he knew how incapable you are of development or progress, he would change you off for some young man of greater promise. Lie low, my boy, lie low. That young man was typical of thousands, the great unimaginative horde who have never in the slightest degree developed their imaginations. I do not like the phrase, never cross a bridge until you come to it. It is used by too many men as a cloak for mental laziness. The world is owned by men who cross bridges on their imagination, miles and miles in advance of the procession. Some men are born with more of imagination than others, but it can, by hard work, be cultivated. Not by mere daydreaming, not by lazy wandering, but by hard study and earnest thought. You and I said to ourselves idly, I wonder what is going to happen when the war is over. But one day, during the war, I had luncheon with a group of men who said, at least a thousand different developments are coming at the close of the war, each one of which will make men rich. Beginning today, we start to study. I met another man who has recently been added to the staff of a great concern engaged in exporting goods to South America. That man has never seen South America. But on the day war was declared in Europe, he said to himself, Europe's trade with South America is coming to us. I am going to learn everything there is to know about that continent. He crossed his bridge four years in advance. Looking into the future, what bridges do you see?
End of Essay Number 46 Essay Number 47 We Shall Win If Our Sense of Humor Lasts a serious-minded reader took me to task because a remark in an article of mine during the war seemed to him too facetious. In ordinary times this might be all right, he reminded me, but we are in the midst of a great war and it is no time for jokes. To which I replied that we were in the midst of a great war, therefore we should have twice as many jokes and they should be twice as funny. Only yesterday I was reading about a cabinet meeting held at the White House in one of the most critical hours of our history. The incident was recorded by Secretary Stanton, not a particularly sympathetic reporter. Around the table the various secretaries gathered, solemn-faced and silent. To their amazement the President, instead of turning to the business in hand, began reading aloud a chapter from the humorous works of Artemis Ward. The cabinet members were too astonished to speak. Stanton was tempted to leave the room in angry protest. The president, unheeding, read the chapter through. Then, laying the book down, he heaved a deep sigh and said, Gentlemen, why don't you laugh? With the fearful strain that is upon me night and day, if I did not laugh I should die, and you need this medicine as much as I. So saying, he turned to his tall hat, which was on the table beside him, and drew out what Stanton described as a little white paper. That little white paper was the Emancipation Proclamation. The members of the cabinet never could fathom the mingling of laughter and tears that was the secret of Lincoln's greatness. They were afraid of laughter. They regarded it as dangerous, and, in times like those, almost immoral. But Lincoln knew better. Humor to him, as to many other overburdened man, was the great shock-absorber of life. Without its kindly ministrations, the hard places of the road would have wrenched his soul beyond endurance. Napoleon seldom smiled. Cromwell had little sense of humor. Either of them would be a dangerous man to handle our affairs in times like these. Such men become too profoundly impressed with their own importance, and in the critical moment their self-importance often betrays their better judgment. Give us, rather, men like Washington, who, as Irving writes, frequently leaned back and laughed until the tears ran down his face. Men like Lincoln, whose point of view is so detached that they can laugh even at themselves. A saving sense of humor is the fourth great Christian virtue, says A.C. Benson, and that is so true that I wish it had been written in the Bible instead of in one of Mr. A.C. Benson's books. A man may have faith, and hope, and charity, and still be a prig and a bore. Jesus was none of these. He was the most popular dinner guest in Jerusalem. No one ever criticized him for being too serious-minded and respectable. Instead, he was criticized for dining out too much, for not compelling his disciples to fast, and for being too much with the loud, laughing crowd of publicans and sinners. I have some righteous friends who are going to feel greatly shocked at the conduct of the saints in heaven. They have never read that verse in the Bible which says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. With all my heart I would urge them to begin right now, even in serious days like these, to cultivate that fourth great Christian virtue. Lest, perchance, they die, and, in a heaven presided over by a God who dearly loves a laugh, shall find themselves lonesome and ill at ease.
End of Essay Number 47 Essay Number 48 Living in a Limousine and Living in a Tub there was quite a little group of people on the curbstone waiting for a break in the stream of passing automobiles. Among them, two shop girls and I. The girls recognized a woman in one of the limousines as the wife of a very rich New Yorker, and their comments were distinctly envious. I smiled to myself as I listened, for only a few days before I had been at a party where the lady in the limousine was present and I wished that the girls might have been there too, and heard the remarks she made. She came dressed in a thousand dollars worth of clothes, with five or ten thousand dollars worth of jewels sprinkled over her. And, from the minute of her arrival until she left, her conversation consisted of nothing but cynicism and complaint. She had just moved into a new apartment. It was noisy, she said, and she hated it already. The limousine her husband had given her as a birthday surprise, and he ought to have known that she loathed upholstery of that color. She had seen all the new shows, and they bored her to death. Of all the bitter, soul-sick people whom I have ever met, she takes first prize, and the little shop girls envied her. What feelings would have been in their hearts if they had lived in Athens about 400 B.C., and had seen a poorly dressed man living in a wooden tub. Pity, probably, perhaps contempt. Yet, when Alexander the Great visited that man and offered him any favor in the world, the man replied that he wanted only one thing, that Alexander should step out of his sunlight. A curious old world, isn't it, where a lady in her limousine, possessed of everything, is still dissatisfied, and Diogenes, in his tub, owning nothing, can be so content. We are on the threshold of a period when the struggle to get things is going to take on a new, perhaps more bitter, phase. The men who have carried the hard, unpleasant burdens of the world learned, during the war, their power over the world. They have learned from Russia that the most strongly entrenched government cannot stand against them. They have learned from England that labor can dictate to cabinets. In America, as Samuel Gompers says, they have made in three years a generation of progress. I do not see how any real lover of the race can fail to find satisfaction in this great forward movement of the common man. The movement will have its excesses, but has capitalism had no excesses? It will frequently prove expensive, but so has every previous regime. My fear for the common man is not that he will cost the world too much, but that, when he gets what he wants, he will find that he has still somehow failed of happiness. I would have him study a little the strange case of Diogenes and of the limousine lady. Before he sets forth on his journey to the top, I would have him cut out these lines of Milton and paste them in his hat. He that has light within his own clear breast may sit in the center and enjoy bright day. But he that hides a dark soul and foul thoughts benighted walks under the midday sun, Himself is his own dungeon. From the dungeons of poverty and hunger and want, the common man is going to be delivered. I would put him on his guard, lest, in escaping from these, he be plunged into the worst dungeon of spiritual death. His mind is filled now with the thought of a day when every one will have his own limousine. I ask him to remember that a world in which we all lived in tubs would be a first-class world, 
if we all had the spirit of Diogenes, and that where there is no vision the people perish, just as surely as where there is no food. End of Essay number 48 Essay number 49 Democracy is a new show, and every citizen is the stage manager. A very patriotic citizen came to me during the war, much perturbed. These investigations in Washington are outrageous, he exclaimed. Suppose there have been mistakes. Is that any reason why we should advertise them to our enemies? Is there any sense in crying from the housetops that we have only nine Browning machine guns, and that our men are inadequately clothed and equipped? Such matters ought to be kept secret. And I remarked to him that in Germany such matters were kept secret. There are only two families living on the world's main street, I said to him. There is the autocracy family, who keep the front door locked and the front curtains drawn. The lawn looks tidy and the house is well kept, but no one knows what's going on behind those curtains. It may be only a friendly game of pinochle, but it may be counterfeiting, or a bomb plot, or murder. And there is the old widow democracy. Her lawn is covered with tin cans, and her children are scrapping all over it, and she does her washing right out on the front porch. But she's in sight every minute, and she has to be pretty honest, whether she wants to or not. One of the reasons we were fighting, I said to him, was to make the autocracy family pull up those curtains and bring their corncob pipes and their laundry out on the porch. And while our boys were over in autocracy's front yard, breaking the windows and letting sunlight into the back rooms, we didn't want anybody, the president or anyone else, to be staying at home and locking our doors or pulling our curtains down. Public criticism is always noisy, sometimes unpleasant, and frequently mistaken. But it is an inseparable feature of democratic control. And, in the long run, it works well, even for the men who are criticized. And now, my dear Morley, wrote Gladstone to John Morley, there is one more thing I wish to say to you. Take it from me that to endure trampling on with patience and self-control is no bad element in the preparation of a man for walking firmly and successfully in the path of great public duty. Be sure that discipline is full of blessings. It is a good thing also for business. One of the great captains of industry of the old school died a few years ago. A little while before his death he attended a meeting of the directors of one of the country's largest industries. There he said something like this, I am convinced that I have been wrong, and that you younger men who have stood for full publicity have been right. I am too old now to change, but if I had my life to live over again I would take the public into my confidence straight through. Most of all, publicity is a good thing for governments. In the first place, it is necessary to open up the processes of our politics. They have been too secret, too complicated. They have consisted too much of private conference and secret understandings. If there is nothing to conceal, then why conceal it? If it is a public game, then why play it in private? Publicity is one of the purifying elements of politics. The gentleman who made these remarks is now President of the United States the same gentleman whom many tender-hearted people are seeking to shield from the publicity in which he so thoroughly believes. Autocracy is a very old performance. When the curtain of history rose six or seven thousand years ago, kings were playing their part in the spotlight, 
and they have been on the stage ever since. Democracy is a new show, still in rehearsal. Every individual citizen regards himself as the stage manager, with full liberty to shout directions at the actors, or protest at the top of his voice that their performance is rotten. The result is noise and confusion, but there is no doubt that gradually the show is getting better just the same. End of essay number 49 Essay number 50 Is your conversation a good advertisement for you? As we rode up from Washington together, a man who is a personal friend of President Wilson talked to me about him. One thing that always impresses me, he said, is the wonderful precision of his speech. His mind seems to reach out and grasp the needed word with unfaltering accuracy. I have never known him to hesitate for a word, or employ one that required the slightest modification or explanation. I once asked him to what he attributed this power. He answered that it was due to the early training of his father. My father never allowed any member of his household to use an incorrect expression, said the president. Any slip on the part of one of the children was at once corrected. Any unfamiliar word immediately explained, and each of us encouraged to find a prompt use for it in our conversation so as to fix it in our memories. As we stepped off the train and walked through the station, we passed a group of smartly dressed young women. Their conversation, as we caught it, was something after this fashion. Not really? Sure, I thought I'd die. You don't mean it, not really. Sure, I tell you, I thought I'd die. An unjust prejudice has grown up in the world against the man who talks well and in favor of the wise-looking individual, who sits stolid, saying nothing. My observation is that, generally speaking, poverty of speech is the outward evidence of poverty of mind. The individual whose communication is confined to half a dozen worn expressions has a mind that is not working. It is merely sliding along in well-oiled grooves. A mind constantly reaching out along new paths of thought will of necessity find new language with which to clothe that thought. There is a certain New York businessman among my friends who makes it a rule to ask every applicant for a position, Can you write well? A strange question, one would think, to put to a prospective elevator boy. Yet the man has a reason for it. No man can write clearly, he says, who does not think clearly. I want to see a man's mind at work before I can give him a place in my organization. A mastery of good, clean-cut English is possible to anybody. One very good way to acquire it is by reading aloud. Select some author whose work is worth reading, and keep your mind fixed not merely on the meaning of the words, but on the words themselves. Another good exercise is the one that Benjamin Franklin used. He would read a page from some English classic, and then, putting away the book, seek to reproduce it in writing. By comparing his own version with the original, he learned wherein he could improve. Emerson said that Montaigne's words had so much vitality that if one were to cut them, they would bleed. Daniel Webster used to study the dictionary as other men study the financial page. It paid him, it will pay you. For good or ill, your conversation is your advertisement. Every time you open your mouth, you let men look into your mind. Do they see it well-clothed, 
neat, business-like, or is it slouching along in shoes run down at the heel with soiled linen and frazzled trousers, shabbily seeking to avoid real work? End of Essay Number 50 Essay Number 51 And a Dog Runs Out and Barks Strange how a sound will sometimes set the chords of memory to vibrating. It may be a woman's laugh, or a snatch of song, or even the barking of a dog at twilight. The other night I left the train two stations away from my home, and started to walk the rest of the way across the hills. It began to snow after a little. From the houses along the road, lights flickered through the haze, and as I rounded a curve, a little dog ran out and barked. In an instant, my mind leaped back twenty years or more to the days when I carried a newspaper route in Boston. I remembered how long the way used to seem, two miles out and two miles back, and how dark it was in winter when the sun had gone, and how I hated one newspaper that used to issue a great edition of twenty-four pages on Saturday evenings. The editors must be heartless creatures, I thought to myself. Surely they had never been boys and compelled to travel a paper route. In a big house up on the hills, in the district where rich men lived, there were two dogs that every night barked at me. Oh, they won't bite, said the owner. They bark, but they're perfectly good-natured. How serenely confident every man is that his dog is perfectly good-natured. Every night I had to gird up my courage to start out on that route, thinking of those two dogs that would run out and bark. I was just a little fellow, in short pants, and the space between my knees and my ankles seemed pathetically unprotected, just made for dogs to bite. The owner caught them snapping at me one night, and I remember yet how he laughed. It seemed to him a bully joke. A little boy worried by two big barking dogs. And I shall never forget that owner, nor the man whose house stood next to his. It was the night before Christmas. Snow was coming down, and it seemed more dark than usual, and the papers were heavy, and the route more long. I had just come out of the yard of the man with the dogs, and as I stepped onto the porch of the next house, suddenly the door opened, and a big, jolly-faced man stood smiling in the lamplight. "'Hello, kid,' he cried jovially. "'I've been waiting for you. Do you know what day tomorrow is?' "'Yes, sir,' I answered. "'It's Christmas.' Right you are, he shouted, and here's something from Santa Claus. He opened his hand, and there was a big silver dollar. I do not know his name. I have not seen him in twenty years. But last night, walking home in the snow, I remembered him with a warm feeling around my heart. And I fell to thinking that I must be pretty nearly as big now as he was when he gave me that dollar, and about as old. And I wondered how I looked to the kid that brings my paper and the other kids I meet, and whether I am the kind of man that is always too busy to take time to be kind to them, or whether I am the kind that they would sort of like to run into, when it's cold and the route is long and the burden is heavy, and a dog runs out and barks. End of Essay Number 51 End of It's a Good Old World by Bruce Barton